you were a witch. Uh, like, <laughs> he, he should not have let you in. He read the situation correctly. Right, exactly. <laughs> Welcome, fellow sleuths. To Meddling Adults, a game show where we grab our multifunctional automobiles and go head-to-head to test our wits against the prowess of fictional young detectives for charity. I'm your host, Mike Schubert. I'm notoriously bad at solving children's mysteries, which is why I'm safely behind the judges' table, letting others duke it out instead. Today's mysteries will be coming from the 2003 reboot of Scooby-Doo, What's New Scooby-Doo? And our contestants today are two lovely human beings that I have had the pleasure of working with in the past. You may know them from many different walks of content, whether that be their YouTube channel, the Super Carlin Brothers, their podcast, Popcorn Culture, their coffee company, Carlin Brothers Coffee, or them kicking my butt in a Ludo Bagman trivia duel. It is Jay (laughs) and Ben Carlin, the Super Carlin Brothers. Jay and Ben, how's it going? Hey, hey. It's going great, man. How are you? Just super excited to be here. I am excited to have you. I am doing well. I am very much looking forward to this. You know, as I mentioned in the intro, I always allude to me being bad at solving children's mysteries, which is a nod to me just guessing everything wrong along the journey for Potterless. Oh, man. Always, always failing to figure out what was going on. But you two really have the knack for predicting things like you solve mysteries before they even happen. Like you, you with your fan theories are like, I wonder. We've had we've had a few couple of good hits here and there. We were (laughs) able to sleuth out that like uh, in Fantastic Beasts that Nagini was actually going to be uh, Claudia. Kim's character ahead of time. Mm-hmm. That was that was a really good uh, big victory for us right there. And we do go back through and try and solve a lot of the like the unsolved mysteries of like all of our favorite fandoms and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We we probably have a little bit of like the you know if you throw enough things at the wall, surely some of them are close to the surely. target. Exactly. Um, so I think we benefit a little bit from like when we win, it's obvious, and when we're wrong, it's less obvious. And yeah. so you know the wins certainly stand out a lot. More. Absolutely do. I yeah. do remember growing up watching. Scooby-Doo though it took me an alarming amount of time to realize like they only meet like two people per episode and it's like it's got to be one of those two right like duh <laughs> right like right. You know, as if they were going to get to the end and be like actually it was this hidden fourth character you've never seen right right oh what that is what I appreciate about Scooby-Doo is that they very rarely do the oh it's this person you haven't met before oh yeah some of the older episodes like from the early runs of Scooby-Doo do that oh but what's new Scooby-Doo is absolutely perfect for this podcast because they very much kind of follow a formula of like you're gonna meet four people and they're all gonna be evenly sketchy right it's just absolutely flawless for the show now before we get into the actual mysteries we'll be doing today I believe you also have some children's mystery history a la Encyclopedia Brown, which is intentionally why I chose Scooby-Doo this episode so that you didn't go, oh, yeah, I remember this one. No, I, yeah. I literally was like, if it's the blueberry pie eating one, then I know exactly who <laughs> no did it. No problem. <laughs> you can't um, lift that bar of gold above your head. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We, were, we were just talking about that one because the density of gold video we made. Yeah. No. So our mom growing up would do like bedtime stories with us. And honestly, I mean, she did it like well through, you know, fifth grade and stuff like that. We'd read books at night. And Encyclopedia Brown, I think, was something that like really resonated with the whole family because it really became this like really interactive way of doing bedtime stories. Like she would read it. And I think a lot of times she could solve it, you know, 
basically like right away. Yeah, yeah, right, it's yeah. very obvious to her. So she pretty much usually knew what was going on. But th- I think then she was in like a great position to like work with us to like sort of like look for the clues and like ask questions and sort of like, you know, guide us along. But I, I don't know about Jay, but like I, a lot of times I'm like, I feel like it, it must have played such a critical role in creating this like theorizing mindset that we now have as adults. Like we're looking for hints and clues and like, yeah, along you know, like, the way, well, what did that line mean? How like it never got played out. Like, what could that be about? So yeah, the, the encyclopedia Brown stuff was, I have to imagine at least as of like 2001, we had, I don't know if they kept writing more, but oh, I have um, no idea. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I gotta get these for my kids. Like they're getting very, Luke's probably getting dangerously close to where he could like maybe start deducing out some stuff here. Yeah. yeah that'd yeah. be amazing. That's fun. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. They have stopped making them because the author unfortunately passed, but oh, he was old. Okay. Like, he started writing these in the sixties, okay, but gotcha, I gotcha. think they did make them like up through the early two thousands. There's quite a few. There's at least like 25. Oh my gosh. Brown books. And then each one has 10 mysteries. Yeah. It's pretty great. Oh man. Well, I can, I think our, our like school library had like four encyclopedia Brown books. And I think like once a year it'd be like, it's time to start checking out the encyclopedia Brown books again. Yep. yep. Let's go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just torrent right on through yep. them again. Yep. Amazing. Now, as mentioned, this is a podcast for charity, and the normal thing that we have is people playing for different charities. But I like what we're doing in this episode, where the two of you are playing for the same charity that you have supported in the past, but it's a brother's bragging rights battle for who gets to brag that they gave the money. So do either of you or both of you want to describe who you are playing for today? Uh, We're basically just playing for the local branch of Feeding America. So it's just um, Feeding Southwest Virginia. Yeah. And and I think it's just kind of like one of those things that like when we started the coffee company, we really wanted to be sure that like we had a way that the company itself was constantly like giving back through, you know, every transaction. So Feeding Southwest Virginia, we picked up as like the charitable cause that we're working with about a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's just really cool. Like with what we do, like living in sort of like small town Virginia here, I think it's really neat to um, use the reach that we have to a an otherwise global audience to then sort of like pull some resources to give back to our local community because when we've lived in the same town that we grew up in uh, our whole lives, our families are here and everything. So we're we're big fans of the area. We love yeah. Roanoke, Virginia. So it's neat to have been able to give back a little bit. That's awesome. That's great. Well, I'm very excited that no matter what happens. Money is going to a good organization. It's just a matter of who gets the bragging rights. So let's get into how we're going to get to those bragging rights. Here is how the game works. I will be recapping three quick mysteries from the esteemed children's TV program, What's New Scooby-Doo? Neither of you have seen these episodes ahead of time. I'll lay out all the clues. I'll ask for your accusations. And each correct guess of culprit, means, method, motive, etc. will earn you points. But there are also bonus points at stake. If your guess matches my incorrect guess, you will earn a Misery Loves Company bonus point. I say incorrect because usually I am wrong. Now, there also can be bonus points just for anything that I feel deserves one, whether that be a funny joke or a particularly wild guess or a good theory, anything along those lines. I'm just going to throw out bonus points because, you know, we need some joy in this world and that makes me happy and hopefully it makes everyone happy. So we'll throw those around. Now, if the score is tied at the end of these three rounds, we will break the tie in the only fitting way with a sudden death riddle. But we'll see if it even gets to that. Okay, okay. 
okay. one gown on it. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie, I'm I'm so nervous. I am famously so like we you joined us for our Ludo Bagman quiz, but I famously lose every quiz that we take between the well, two of us. That's based on memory of things that I already know. This is gonna be having to sleuth on the fly. So I'm not as mm-hmm. confident as I might mm-hmm. usually be. Although I'll tell you, I did watch Glass Onion yesterday. So oh, maybe wow, I'll yeah. be channeling some Benoit Blanc. Always a good yeah. character to have fresh on the mind. Yeah. I was going to say before we got into it, asking you to each state your names just so that if anyone just audio wise didn't know who was speaking, they could put it together. But yeah, that was John speaking. And if you hear someone dip into a Georgia Southern accent, <laughs> yeah, that's John, John not Ben. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get into the first mystery, which is called The Fast and the Wormiest. That is correct. That is a pun wow. based on The Fast and the Furious. What's new Scooby-Doo? Always hitting hard with the pun titles. Pun is generous, but okay, sure. The Fast yeah. and yeah, the they, they, get, <laughs> they get real. They get real loose with it. I appreciate the dedication. It makes me wonder what happens, like, what's the chicken and the egg situation? Does the title come first and then the reverse? But this one, not the strongest title, but I'm here for it. So... We open with a woman driving a souped-up dune buggy. She is speaking Spanish, and she is driving through the desert, and she gets, of course, attacked by a giant worm. So after she gets attacked by this giant worm, we cut to a Mexican news broadcast about a race called the Enduro Slam 5000, which is a 24-hour race across the desert. Now, if the Enduro Slam 5000 sounds familiar to you or anyone else listening, that's because it is referenced in a later episode of What's New Scooby-Doo that we have covered on the podcast before. When I was taking the notes for this, I was like, Enduro Slam 5000, why does that sound so familiar? I haven't accidentally done this one on the show already, have I? And then I went through my old notes. It gets referenced in a future episode. Oh, that's that's incredible. incredible. That's that's just good continuity. I was going to say, I I love some, and for whatever reason too, uh, all I can picture, and I don't know if it's much more friendly than this, I'm picturing like Mad Max. Oh, totally. The Scooby-Doo edition. The Scooby-Doo edition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's basically what it is. It's like Mad Max meets Fast and the Furious meets Scooby-Doo. It's a good time. The vibes all around are perfect. Now, the broadcaster of this news broadcast is named Jaime Herrera, and he's interviewing a local dirt bike legend named Roberto Torres. Roberto says that the competition is tough this year, and as he is talking about how it's going to be a tough race, the camera kind of pans over to Shaggy and Scooby, who are demolishing churros, just absolutely plowing through them. I mean, if if they're available, there's one speed when it comes to churros. (laughs) Right, yeah, no one's one's like nursing a churro. (laughs) (laughs) I'm savoring it, okay? Come on. (laughs) So then we see Fred, who is working on the modded up mystery machine, where it has now been all re-engineered to be ready for off-road racing. Oh, man, they've Mad Maxed it. Yeah, they really have. And then we see the woman from the intro. She drives up, pulls up next to them at the starting line, and Fred identifies her as five-time Enduro Slam 5000 champion Lupe Cesares. And her car is a bit beat up from what we saw in the intro. So Daphne asks what happened to her car, and she says that she ran into the giant worm, which is also known as El Gusaro Grande, during a practice run. So that was what the intro scene was. She was practicing, giant worm attacked, her car got a bit beat up, but she seems to be okay otherwise. Okay, okay. Still planning to compete. 
still planning to compete. And Velma and Shaggy think, well, shouldn't the race be postponed? But Lupe says that nothing will stop her from winning the race and nothing will stop the race from taking place. So she really wants to win. She doesn't care about the danger of the giant worm. I'm okay. imagining like the Alaskan bullworm from SpongeBob, you know? Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, that's that. It, it, yeah. It, could it be anything else? <laughs> right. Well, you've earned our first bonus point of the episode for yes. that reference, because all I could remember was the dune worm. But I was like, it doesn't feel exactly like the dune worm. Alaskan bullworm. Yeah, it's that's a good, good call. Good call. Excellent. So Jay takes a one zero lead oh, in, yes. in the competition. So before the race begins, we then see a group of protesters near the starting line, and they are all wearing worm costumes and they're chanting off road racers, earth disgracers, which is a pretty solid chant as far as right. environmental protesting the Enduro Slam 5000 goes. Mm-hmm. Right, of right. all the things to pick, I respect it. Yeah, 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 that's, yeah that's solid. Yeah. That's solid. I can they're see afraid they're going to damage the giant worm? This is their concern? We will learn their motives soon. Okay, But okay. those protesters are certainly coming back. Okay, okay. So okay, more okay. racers line up at the starting line. One of the racers is Gibby Norton, who I was very familiar with. But this is the episode of What's New Scooby-Doo that is the first appearance of Gibby Norton. Ooh. Gibby is this person who is a recurring character, kind of like a poindextery, nasally voiced person that is head over heels in love with Velma. I was going to say, don't we already have Velma? <laughs> Oh, this guy makes Velma look like the coolest person on her. (laughs) She arguably is already. Yeah, yeah, right. Gibby shows up and he is driving a lunar powered car. And he tries to impress Velma by the fact that he's driving it. It's got like a big black lunar. Like lunar, know, meaning like, that like it only works panel, at night. But, yeah, I guess okay. like, like, like power like, of the moon. The, okay, okay. <laughs> so Does the race he, take place during the day or at night? It's twenty four hours. Oh, so, okay, okay. So for twelve hours a day, he's like, set booking it <laughs> for twelve hours a night. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So he comes up and basically asks Velma if he's impressed by the car. And Daphne goes, ooh, you two know each other? And Velma explains that they were once lab partners in science camp. And that is what started the whole thing where Gibby is convinced that they are in love with each other. So I'm glad we finally get this introduction. I will say that Gibby, even though he is a recurring character, sometimes he's guilty. So don't throw out Gibby just because he shows up in more than one episode. Like, I was okay, say, yeah. all right. Sometimes he's just there. Sometimes he does it. Okay, okay, okay. 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 <laughs> All in the name of winning Velma's affection. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes they're like a bad boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes he does a crime in order to try to win her over. And then sometimes he's just there to try to win her over. So okay. okay. It's interesting. He does always find a way to get out of jail, though. Like he's been arrested multiple times. Well, he did go to science camp. So, right. Yeah, there's right. Oh, that's true. Right. He just keeps breaking out. Yeah. <laughs> now, another one of the racers who shows up is a cowboy straight out of the McConaughey playbook named Burr Batson. And he pulls up in a literal monster truck. He is dozens of feet above the ground, huge wheels, the whole thing. He trash talks Fred, who is being super nice this entire time. He doesn't do a great job of trash talking him, though, because he asks Fred, how many horses do you have? And Fred says, oh, 400 horsepower in the engine. And Burr says, no, I mean real horses, because you'll need them to pull your car out of the ditch I'm going to dump it in. And then he ends this with, see at the finish line, not, which I feel like even in 2003, mm. we had aged out of the not jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, we're, right. that's like early 90s, man. Come on. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Not. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good one. All right. Nah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the race then begins, and we learn that Fred has only ever driven off-road in video games before. Never done this in real life, so Velma is very worried. She starts looking through the map and explains to the gang and to all of us as the viewer that basically the race goes through the desert and into an area called Diablo Gulch. And whoever leaves through the gulch, which is like a narrow pass between two peaks, whoever escapes out of that first wins the race. Okay. Okay. They're driving through. They pass a giant statue of a worm. Doesn't look exactly like the giant evil worm. It looks just like a large statue of a normal worm. And Velma identifies this as a tribute to worms that native farmers in the area put up because they, in their farming work, rely on worms for crop growth. I do know that is a thing because one of my relatives is starting composting on their own. And specifically, they were, quote, waiting on the worm guy to get back to them. Oh, great. So... This is real. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, I have a compost bin at home. And I was like, worms? Yeah, 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 that that, that totally tracks. There we go. So while they are talking about the statue, Burr, the cowboy, intentionally rams his monster truck through the statue, like swerves out of the way just to break the statue for laughs. Very much establishing this is not a nice human being. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Yes, 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 yes. Fred does overtake Burr for second place, though, by driving on the wall of a mountain, which is pretty cool. And then the person in first place is a motorcyclist with a sidecar who then turns around and gives a bit of a forlorn look and then disappears around a corner. But the gang then sees them hiding in a tree. They are confused. But then the worm attacks. So it seems like this person in first place was hiding from the approaching giant worm. Okay. Okay. The giant worm pops out of the ground, pops a mystery machine tire, and then chases after Burr, who passes the mystery machine gang and brags about being in first place now. Okay. They have to fix their tire. Shaggy and Scooby serve as a human car jack to lift up the car because Fred took out the jack to make room for very important upgrades to the mystery machine, such as an ejector seat and emergency flotation devices. Velma asks, why would we need emergency flotation devices in the middle of the desert? And Fred says, you never know when a flash flood is coming through, which I was thinking, I wonder if a flash flood is going to come through in the episode, but (laughs) prove Fred right. We will have to see. Okay. So they fix the tire. They get back into the mix. They're in the middle of the shuffle with all the other cars and the worm attacks again. But this time it cuts across horizontally where they're all racing. It makes a huge divot in the ground. Roberto, the dirt bike driver, tries to jump it. He's chanting, I can make it. I can make it. I can make it. And then he launches off and then halfway through goes, I was wrong, and falls into the valley, <laughs> oh, does no. not complete the jump. That's some top shelf humor. Yeah. It's wrong. pretty good. It's yeah. a good little bit. Burr, in his monster truck, is able to clear the gap, though. The mystery machine ends up falling in, but thanks to Fred's emergency flotation device, they cushion the blow, mm, and they are safe. Now, when they get to the bottom of the valley, they see Roberto's motorcycle, which is perfectly intact, but they don't see Roberto, which they find a bit suspicious. They continue through this little valley, and then the worm protesters show up. Velma asks, what is this place? And the leader says that it is Wormtopia, the ancient home of the Great Worm. I will say that their leader, who goes unnamed, has a very big voluminous haircut and everyone else has full body worm costumes, like with, you know, hoods and gloves and boots and everything. But this person just has like a dress that kind of looks worm-esque. So she's very fashionable. But she's very clearly the leader. She is always the point of contact when we deal with the protesters. Okay, so just so I'm keeping track here, the worm went in front of the race and carved a big 
valley which yes. now they're in the bottom of which the protesters uh, are already there <laughs> there are tunnels that lead into it okay okay so okay. basically there seems to have been an established cave network underneath the ground gotcha. and the giant worm just like made a new path that they can now access okay right, okay gotcha. okay mm-hmm. nice yeah just normal standard stuff right yes sure regular giant worm activity just classic desert stuff. Fred asks this leader if she can show them the way out, and she says that she will gladly do so after the great Wormian feast. So then we cut to the gang plus Roberto in a giant soup pot, very King Kong style, as the protesters are waiting for the worm to show up. And using the power of shadow puppets, Scooby makes his paws look like a big scary bird, which scares the protesters just long enough for them to get out of the soup pot. But then the worm does show up, which launches us into a classic Scooby-Doo chase scene. Mm -hmm. The song is an incredible Spanish punk rock song that sounds like it could be straight off of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. So really solid. The gang and Roberto then escape in their respective vehicles. They get back into the race. They are neck and neck with Lupe, the woman racer from the intro. Roberto thanks the gang for saving his life. And then Burr in his monster truck kind of forces Roberto into a different ditch. And then he knocks Lupe into a giant cactus. So Burr is just being obnoxious again. How is he not like at the finish line by now? How long were they in the crater? Uh, You know, I don't know what's going on, but they always find a way to get back into the mix, even when they get sidetracked. It's an episode of Scooby-Doo. It's like Mario Kart race rules. It feels a little bit like. Uh, like, They're just like rubber banding a little. Yeah, Yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like they're they're either as fast or as slow as you are. Right, exactly. (laughs) So what happens then is that Burr and the Mystery Machine gang get to the halfway point of the race, which has an official pit stop. So they stop. Their cars are getting filled up and tuned up. Shaggy and Scooby see a sign that says, get your gas here. And then they see a food counter. And then they go, oh, well, well, I guess we better do so. And then they order two bowls of beans, which is a great gas joke. Yeah. Just oh, A+. Yes, plus. yes. Yeah. wow. A that's plus. fantastic. Wow. <laughs> now, while Shaggy and Scooby are eating and the rest of the gang is talking, you see someone poke a hole in the Mystery Machine's gas tank with a screwdriver. <gasps> and then Burr is trash-talking Fred after we see this little thing happen. And Burr is then emasculated by Fred because they start you know, going back and forth a little bit, Fred being very nice. Fred, not in a bragging way, mentions that he can bench 220 pounds. Wow. And then Burr, I guess, can bench less than that because he just leaves the conversation right after Fred says this. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Embarrassing. Uh, 220 <laughs> is such an interesting choice because it, it's like, it's both, it is impressive. Like, I can't bench 220, but it's mm-hmm. not like, it's not absurd either. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, it's, right. like, it's a palpable amount. Well, you know, yeah. Fred's just working out. He's pumping iron, man. It is a respectable amount because, yes, I can also not bench that much. But what's funny about it is if anyone has done bench pressing at a standard gym in America or a place that uses pounds, the bar is usually 45 pounds. Yes. So that would leave 175 pounds. If you divide that by two, it's 87 and a half pounds. So he'd have to be putting 87 and a half pounds on each side of the bar which is just like really specific that like is, i don't yeah. know if you can get that with like standard weights because you usually have 2.5 5 10 25 45 so you would have to be i'm trying to do the math right now I know, if, like do we if have you can make that at our gym well, i don't think maybe all i, I have know. is two and a half so you okay have to yeah put, that sounds right yeah in order to make this happen he would have to put on a 45 a 25 a 10 a 5 and a 2.5 on each side which isn't 
impossible. It is just funny because it is one of each of the standard weights. I wonder if right. that's how the writers got to that number. That's right. funny. But yeah, 220 yeah. can happen. It's okay. not a pretend number. <laughs> like, he doesn't have custom weights. But yeah, it's like just specific enough where it's not like 250 or just a round number. So I guess whoever did wrote it, maybe they were like, yeah, wouldn't it be funny if he could bench one of each of the weights? Right. Like, <laughs> sure. the, like yeah. the nice effect of the dumbbells on the side. Right, right. Because I think otherwise, just 245s on both sides would give you 225, right? Yeah. Like that, that seems like the yeah. more obvious like reach, but yeah. that's okay. Yeah. He's working up there. He's going to get there. Right. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Incremental growth. Incremental growth, indeed. Now, Gibby is also at the official pit stop. He says that bad news with his race so far is that he sprung a radiator leak. But the good news is that he has a second engine in his trunk. So he's able to rotate his car around because it can be driven in either direction. And then he's going to drive with this new engine. He unsuccessfully flirts with Velma and then drives off. Lupe then pulls up and... As she does, the gang realizes that there has been a hole poked in their gas tank, so they know that someone is sabotaging their car. The worm then arrives, destroys the pit stop, and is about to get to the gang, but then Daphne creates a hydroelectric fuel source for the mystery machine by getting a battery out of her portable blow dryer, putting it into a water bottle, poking a bobby pin through the lid, and then shaking it up. The science is not there, but the vibes certainly are. I'm here for it. Bravo, (laughs) Velma. Oh, no, this was Daphne, because Daphne Daphne in this one, yeah, in What's New Scooby-Doo, Daphne's like incredibly competent, and Fred is more of the damsel in distressy buffoon type okay. and I love the switch Daphne is basically as smart as Velma but they still always make it fashion based hence the blow dryer battery and the bobby pin oh, I gotcha. key yeah. components here okay. oh, but I love man it. it's so good I, it's probably my favorite thing about this reboot that's amazing that's amazing okay very clever ingenuity so they're, they're back in the race we're good Of course, they are back in the race. Fred then is driving away from the worm because the worm is chasing them. He goes over a rock jump. The worm doesn't follow. Velma points that out. So Fred then parks atop the next rock jump. And then Daphne identifies the entrance to Diablo Gulch, which is very close. We see two unnamed racers and Burr pass by with the worm following them. Fred thinks that they're all going to be in serious danger, so he chases after to save them. He is able to successfully save Burr, even though Burr is protesting throughout the whole thing because the worm had chomped out part of Burr's axle, his rear axle of his monster truck. So his car was going to crash for sure. Fred is able to get him to safety. Burr then jumps off of the mystery machine and kind of cowboy saddles the worm, rides it like a bull as it continues to burrow back into the ground. Fred then does what he does best, sets up a trap with Shaggy and Scooby as bait. The worm ends up getting trapped in a big net, but the protesters free the worm. Fred then basically does a game of chicken with the worm, with the mystery machine, crashes into it, destroying the worm, revealing some robotic parts and stuff. Fred is safe because of the ejector seat that he put into the car. And then the worm driver is revealed. So I turn it over to the two of you. Who do you think is behind the evil worm situation? Ooh, okay. Evil, fake, worm. Okay, let's see. Let's see. I mean, I feel like they were setting up Burr's character to be quite unlikable all throughout. However, it seemed like Burr was having too many direct interactions interactions with the worm itself to be able to have been able to do both at the same time. Yeah, it seems like he's more of the the red herring and a little... Like, if they were arguing while someone was poking the hole in the gas tank, like, it doesn't seem like it could have been him who did that. Who's our former five-time champion... That is Lupe. That is Lupe Lupe. Chisares, who was attacked in the intro and then 
was driving in the dented car at the beginning. Okay, okay. Mm, okay, okay. Is okay. there a world where Lupe was concerned at an inability to maintain the title and therefore was kind of going to try to like sandbag a little bit by sort of like demonstrating some damage done to her own vehicle from the very start mm. with the knowledge that the worm would then be able to knock out the rest of the competition. Mm. Interesting. So that she could win anyway. Because I mean, she's got something to lose here. She, I guess so. I guess so. Mm. She has the five-time champion. Mm. I'm thinking of whoever the leader of the worm village is the okay the 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 worm dress the unnamed leader of the wormians the wormians yeah i think this is she's she's coming to mind here as like it seems like they'd be in league with the protesters and the protesters don't want the race to happen so they have the worm itself like act as like validation for their protest or something to scare people off from doing the race or to get them to stop doing it, and she would be invested in that as well as the leader of the Wormians. I could sort of see a world where if this underground society that they've created, I wonder if the worm itself is more the device that they use to create the underground society, but the race causes potential damage to the space where they have the underground society. Right. So it's both the means for expanding the space in which where they live, but also, like, if they can use it to seem threatening enough, so it's like a tractor, essentially. It's like an underground tractor. Like an, oh, you think, yeah, like, this is a tool that they use outside of scaring people. Right, like, because there is an underground tunnel system, correct? Yes. Okay. Is I wonder, is the tunnel system, do we know, is it, are the tunnels themselves bigger or adjacent in size to the, to the... They are larger than the worm, because there is a point in time when the soup situation is happening, that the worm comes in and it is smaller than the cave that has been built out there. Okay. Okay. All right. I feel like the protesters don't want them racing and the people controlling the worm must not want them racing, which makes me feel like they're like motives are the most aligned. And if they don't want them racing, I'm still leading at Wormian leader girl. <laughs> Although she's okay. unnamed, which makes me feel like it's a less good option. And then we've got, so the other option would be Gibby. Yeah. Gibby. And then Roberto Torres would okay. be the other thoughts. Roberto is, is Robert the dirt bike racer. Roberto is the dirt bike. Gibby is the guy who is obsessed with Velma. Okay. It doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like poking a hole in the mystery machine does much for Gibby's cause to win Velma over. <gasps> oh, right. No. And the only thing that we did have in terms of like with the poking hole thing, it poked a hole in the tire and then like one of the teeth of the worm was like stuck in it. And you can just see that it's like a black tooth. And that's like it. the only thing that really happened with the whole poking situation. Okay. okay, but, but in the gas, didn't someone poke a hole in the gas tank? Oh, yes. So later on, someone just like straight up with a screwdriver poked a hole in the gas tank. Okay. Okay. My other thought here, if we want to think of Roberto, who drives the dirt bike. So he, he goes off the ramp. I can make it. I can make it. I can't make it. Lands on the ground. They find the bike, but no Roberto, which right. feels like, although with the worm, yeah. He wasn't there originally. His bike was there and it seemed to be perfectly intact. And then when we had the protesters come and then we cut to the gang in the King Kong soup situation, Roberto was also there. So he did at least show up. But yeah, he was not there initially. When they first land, they see the motorbike, but no Roberto. 
Okay. Interesting. So he lands and runs off somewhere or else is – what is the soup situation? Are they cooking him? They're cooking all of them. Like they're all in the big thing and then they're going to, you know, turn on the fire and okay. offer them up to the worm for the great and feast. Oh, I see. Uh, but right. then Scooby uses his prowess oh, of uh, – right. Shadow puppets to scare them just long enough where they think a giant bird might be flying in and then chasing. If they're trying to feed everybody to the giant worm, does that mean that the Wormians believe that the worm is real and not just a vehicle? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, right, right, right. That's... That's a good point. Although if a giant bird scares them off, maybe they're afraid of giant birds because they have giant worm. And a bird would be scary to threaten that, which brings me back to the Wormian leader, Gus, who I keep landing on. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know. That's good. I, I, think I think I'm think... gonna. That's what my guess is gonna be. All right, so okay. Jay's leader going with the Wormian leader. Yeah. Okay, cool. and you got, ben? I'm gonna go with my five time champion. I'm just gonna go with okay. with like the whole premise of the episode is the race itself. Mm-hmm. This is the person who has clearly been the most prominent in it and I feel like otherwise had like a kind of minimal role in the rest of the story as things progressed forward. I feel like there could be some concern or worry about the ability to maintain the title and went to extraordinary lengths or possibly this is how they even maintain they won the last five races in the first place. Oh yeah, just it's, like they're in they're in cahoots. By, they're in cahoots. Yeah, yeah, so it's been like an undermining type of situation. Uh-huh, yeah. So that's literally. that's that's where I'm that's yeah, an undermining. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am excited to let you both know that you are both incorrect. Oh, man. It was neither of those two. The what? true culprit was Gibby. Gibby. It was Gibby. Gibby. <laughs> Simple motive. Wanted to win the race to impress Velma. And the clues that gave it away were, one, the black tooth that was in that tire pop was the same black material as his lunar... Uh paneling for his lunar-powered car. And then the other thing was that they noticed that the worm would always attack whoever was in first place, and Gibby was never attacked by the worm. He said the only bad thing that happened to him was that radiator leak. He had no other damage to his car. So they were like, well, they attacked everybody except for Gibby, and they kept going after whoever was in first place. So clearly the person wanted to win the race, not like end the race from happening, which is why the gang didn't think it was the protesters or anything like that. And all of the technological prowess that Gibby knew about his car, you know, multiple engines, it can drive in either direction, all that stuff. That would make sense that he also had all this technical knowledge to make this robust mechanical worm. Mm, okay. okay. All right. All right. All right. And Gibby's first appearance has him being the culprit, which makes it even wilder how often he comes back in What's New Scooby-Doo. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I guess that's a good way to, I was kind of thinking like maybe they won't like because it was his first appearance, I was like, they won't do it right away because mm. that way you'll think he's safe like later on. But maybe, right. but maybe by making it him immediately the culprit, then every time he shows up, you're like, oh he, no, now, now yeah. he's always suspicious. <laughs> yeah, because okay. so like every third time he can be the culprit. That right. way, it's sort of like it sometimes is him. Yeah, it was yeah. I'd have to him. I'd have to run the numbers, but it might be a straight up 50-50 <laughs> guilty or <laughs> decoy <laughs> situation. Well, I did give each of you a bonus point because your theories though they were incorrect, were very well thought out. And I really appreciated the dedication. So the score at the end of the first round is two to one in favor of Jay. Alaskan bullworm for the win. (laughs) Alaskan bullworm has you with a slight edge. We're now going to take a quick break in the podcast for our mid-roll break, talk about what's going on the show, some sponsorship stuff, and then we'll get back with the final two mysteries. (laughs) 
Fellow sleuths, welcome to Middling Adults, the mid-roll break for Middling Adults. I'm going to keep this one brief because this is a long episode, but just in case you are new here, maybe you are a Super Carlin Bros fan and you're listening to this and you're not necessarily sure how the whole podcast works, this is a game show for charity and we raise money for charity in a couple of different ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash Adults and you can support. You can get a couple of cool bonus features like ad-free episodes. You can also get your name on the website. We'll thank you in the season finale episode. A whole bunch of cool things there. We put up bonus clips. For example, there will be a bonus clip from this episode, just Ben asking me how I prepare for the show. So there's a whole thing about my process. So all of that lives at patreon.com slash adults. You also can give a one-time donation instead of monthly support at paypal.me slash adults. And then we also raise money for charity via ad money. So if you simply listen to the episode and you tell other people about the podcast and more people download it, then that also raises money for charity. At the end of each season, we take all of these funds, we cover the expenses that go into producing the show, and then we divide the remaining funds amongst the winning charities evenly. Now, speaking of those ads, we're going to take a break here where you will hear some ads. Some of them will be read by me and others of them will not be. The ones that aren't read by me are inserted locally, and I have control over the categories, but sometimes some sketchy companies do sneak through. If you get any of those, please send an email to meddlingadults at gmail.com and I will get it squashed. But once those ads are complete, we'll get back to the conclusion. We'll get back to this episode of Meddling Adults. And we're back, and let's do case number two, which is called A Scooby-Doo Halloween. Now, this episode, I'm trying to think scheduling-wise, might come out very close to Halloween. Yes, no pun in this one, correct. It is just straight up A Scooby-Doo Halloween. But it is a fun one nonetheless. So it opens with Shaggy and Scooby, which is surprising because usually these episodes open with someone being in grave danger and then the gang showing up. But this one has Shaggy and Scooby getting chased by a hay monster. Okay. They then get into an airboat, like on a swamp. So does the monster. But it is a trap. This is basically the end of a mystery. So we join our gang in Medias Res, or I guess whatever in End Res is, as they are unveiling and doing the unmask. And the I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for you meddling kids. Shaggy and Scooby are trying to rush the whole spiel, where Velma and Daphne and Fred are doing the whole, we knew it was this guy because we saw this clue. They're like, okay, come on, come on, come on. And then they, like, basically push the other three into the mystery machine and Shaggy starts driving it and Velma is very surprised that this is all going down asks Shaggy why did you rush the ending so much Shaggy explains that he wants to get to the home of Velma's aunt and uncle before the end of Halloween Velma is further confused because Halloween is tomorrow but Shaggy wants to get to town ASAP because Velma's aunt and uncle live in Banning Junction which is the place to be for Halloween and they want to get in early before all the crowds. Now, the crew is double confused because they ask Shaggy, aren't you two afraid of everything? Why would you want to do a Halloween thing? Shaggy clarifies that it is pretend scary, which is not real scary, so Halloween is okay by them. I love <laughs> okay, it. Okay, wow. I, I, okay. That is 
quality logic. Uh, yeah, from people who unmask villains who dress up in Halloween costumes year round, uh, <laughs> you'd think Halloween would be like not so great for them. But right, right, right. <laughs> now we also learn that it is the 100th year anniversary of the Halloween festival that this town does, and Kiss the band oh. is going to perform in Banning Junction. Kiss, who has showed up in some Scooby Doo stuff in the past, like in the 70s and 80s. So at the beginning of this episode, when Kiss was mentioned, I was like, okay, there's a chance Kiss is actually in the episode. And spoiler alert, they are. That's awesome. great. Paul Stanley is in it. He's credited. He has multiple lines. He does a perfect job. That's amazing. When they arrive at Velma's aunt and uncle's place, they are greeted not with a warm welcome, but by a very warm welcome if you count torches because a literal angry mob stops them and... They only back down when Velma's aunt and uncle recognize Velma. Apparently, someone has been slashing and burning the cornfields in town, and the police have no idea what's going on. Of course they don't, because they're the police, and the only people who can solve crimes in this world is the Mystery Machine gang. Mystery Inc. is way better at detective sleuthing than any sort of law enforcement. Of course, of course. Well, they've got yeah, a talking yeah. dog. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, really yeah. cool van. <laughs> yeah, she's what I'm saying. <laughs> now, something that I did pick up on, because I'm always eternally confused of the age of Mystery Inc., we don't know, like, if they are teenagers, if they're college age, they have friends who are professors, so you'd think they're in college. I'm always confused as to how old they are. I initially thought they might be confirmed as teens here because there's a grumbly guy in the crowd named Curtis who wants to blame this on teenagers. And Shaggy and Scooby give the very much like, oh yeah, teenagers, they're the worst, we hate them. But then I wondered, oh wait, are they trying to push the blame on teenagers because they're not teenagers and they're trying to get themselves in the clear? I will never know how old the Mystery Machine gang is. Oh man. I would love it if the writers are like, oh, this is part of the gag. Yeah, this is, is a, it's yeah, like, yeah you're we, never supposed to know. We will go to uh -huh. extraordinary lengths to always keep it ambiguous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's perfect. Now, someone is hiding in the bushes watching all of this unfold. And then we cut to the gang inside Velma's aunt and uncle's place. Velma's cousin Marcy then enters. She looks absolutely nothing like Velma's aunt Meg and uncle Evan. Aunt Meg is basically like an older looking Velma. And Marcy is very much like Southern beauty queen, like blonde, flowing, feathered hair and, you know, a plaid shirt tied up a little short above her jeans and boots. Like, she's very country classic, but that is not the vibe. Velma's Aunt Meg is wearing, like, a patterned Halloween vest, and then her Uncle Evan is just, like, classic farmer, like, trucker cap, jeans, flannel button-up, etc. Okay, okay. Right. I've got it. So Marcy shows up and Velma comments, I guess they haven't seen each other in a while. She goes, oh, wow, look how much you've changed. And Marcy comments on Velma saying, well, you haven't changed at all. Are you wearing the same outfit that I saw you last time in? <laughs> Which is just perfect jokes. Perfect jokes. <laughs> oh, man. Yes, I wear this every day. Thanks. Yeah, I yep. wear this every single episode. Aunt Meg is incredibly hyped for the 100-year anniversary festival. Uncle Evan says that the rumor going around town is that Hank Banning's ghost is due to show up. Ooh. Fred checks that he's referring to the town's founder. Evan confirms, adding that Hank Banning was mayor for 30 years until his wits got the best of him. Meg says that Hank went paranoid. He started hearing voices and seeing things. He was deemed unfit for office, and the townspeople voted him out. Evan says that before he died on Halloween night, he put a curse on the town, saying that his spirit would return after 100 years to seek revenge on the town who wronged him. Aunt Meg says that many folks don't believe this, but 
turnout for this Halloween celebration is still stellar because folks want to say that they were there on the night that the legend was supposed to come true. And Shaggy adds, uh, it also might be because Kiss is playing. (laughs) (laughs) Just let me throw it out there. Possibility. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous bands on earth will be in this town that no one's ever heard of. Right. 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 That that could be the draw. That That could be that. Yeah. Otherwise, big Y2K energy a little bit. Right. (laughs) Just, just, Just be there. I'm getting a bonus point for the Y2K reference because, you know, you got to be there. It's tied to you to do. Lightning strikes and then an image of a pumpkin-headed scarecrow shows in the mirror. Daphne notices it, but then it is gone in a flash. Marcy, just completely out of pocket, says, it was probably your own reflection. And initially, I just hope it's Marcy. I love Daphne. I don't want Marcy to be rude to her for no good reason. I was confused as to why Marcy was just incredibly rude to Daphne out of nowhere. But we will soon see that Marcy has the hots for Fred. And she is trying to steal Fred away from Daphne. Wow. Wow. So they continue to talk about this Halloween festival. Aunt Meg adds that this year is also special because Marcy has been crowned as the Corn Princess and will thus be the queen of the masquerade ball, which begs the question, why is she not the Corn Queen? Why is the princess the queen of the ball? Marcy then hits on Fred, which makes Daphne even more upset. And then there's more conversation. She hits on Fred again and then adding that Fred looks like he's very strong, as if he could bench 220. And I was like, wait a second, is this a bit? So then I looked on YouTube, and in What's New Scooby-Doo, it is a running gag where Fred mentions that he can bench 220. And there's like a 30-second compilation video that I watched where he just like keeps mentioning it. I am so so glad that we mentioned the 220 thing. so good. Yeah, I'm going to have to go back and see if I pointed that out in previous episodes of What's New Scooby-Doo, because I wouldn't be surprised if in the past I was like, 220s, oddly specific, but I just like don't remember it. But yeah, it's a recurring bit in What's New Scooby-Doo. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is I, so outstanding. I would love to have been in the writer's room where they're like, what if Fred's just like constantly bragging about how much he could bench and it's always mm-hmm. the same weight. It really, I mean, right. the, yeah, that's hilarious. It's such a medium brag. It feels mm-hmm. like there needs to be like some sort of like season finale payoff where he's like under like a cart or something and they're like, what is that, like 220 pounds? And he's like, no problem. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> What's funny is I haven't watched the episode where this happens, but in the compilation one of the ones has fred on a bench press doing a set and he says i'm training to lift 220 <laughs> one. Oh my gosh <laughs> so he is trying to improve himself so, uh, yeah. yeah but like truly just a little bit yeah incremental that's incremental amazing. that's I the, mean, way the amount it, of you know? work he had to have done to get to 220 it's like it seems like it's a real hard plateau for him you yeah, know like it's not easy to yeah. get up there really stuck yeah <laughs> So then a cat jumps on the windowsill outside. Scooby growls at it because he is a dog. But then the cat's eyes glow completely red and that scares Scooby and he runs away. So then we cut to someone in full scarecrow garb, just absolutely wrecking a cornfield, scaring off a couple that was there for like a moonlight drive kind of thing. So then the next day at the festival, Daphne ruins Marcy's attempt to flirt with Fred at a caramel-dipped apple stand by popping a balloon where it scares Marcy and then she gets caramel all over her shirt. Nice. Love Petty Daphne. Really enjoying Petty Daphne. So then we meet some new characters. We have Mayor Green, who is dressed just in a classic sort of business suit. He shows up saying that the legend and the rumor has made this festival the best turnout in years. And then he is also joined by Eldon Reed, who is wearing a bolo tie, cowboy hat, very southern situation. He says, oh, man, it's too bad that this great turnout can't happen every year. 
And then Curtis, the grumpy anti-teenager farmer from before, tells everyone to come quick because the crop destruction has happened again. So everyone goes there, they see that the crops are destroyed, and Aunt Meg asks who could do something like this. And Fred notices that the only footprints that are in the area are the ones that they made. And Velma thinks that's impossible because in a cornfield that's muddy, anything would leave a track, even an animal. Daphne feels like it could be as if someone dropped down from the sky to make this happen. Oh, wow. Like a ghost. So then that cat that had the red eyes returns and it steals Shaggy's candy apple out of his hand. So of course Shaggy and Scooby chase after it because it's food. Right. They climb up a water tower with a ladder on the outside of it. And then when they're up there, they get spooked because they can see not only have the crops been destroyed, but they have been destroyed in the symbols that represent Halloween. So there's a big jack-o'-lantern, there's a bat, there's a witch, and there's a ghost. Okay. So Velma and Fred go up the water tower to see what's going on. They see a glove left up there. Fred wonders why there would be a glove at the top of the water tower. And it's very much like a defunct water tower. Like it's kind of breaking apart and stuff. It's not like a functional one. So Fred thinks, you know, someone's not working here why would there be a glove up here right shaggy asks what could have made the patterns and then an old lady in traditional southern dress attire very you know like old school pink ruffles and stuff she comes up she identifies her name as agnes and she says that hank banning made these patterns and he also made a prophecy that there would be signs in the cornfields when he was set to return so she thinks that everyone is doomed because hank banning is coming back okay this is all taking place on the ground she didn't show up at the top of the water okay, tower okay, okay. she showed yeah, up after gonna... they climbed down what's <laughs> <laughs> everyone doing up here i'm not looking for a glove <laughs> So they're in this big group. Uncle Evan says, that's ridiculous. It's just an old legend. Mayor Green, the guy in the suit, agrees that it's just an old wives' tale used to scare kids. Agnes tells him that he hasn't called it an old wives' tale before, and he certainly didn't say it was an old wives' tale when he was encouraging tourists to spend their money to come here for the festival. And then Agnes adds that the only people who will survive are those who have prepared and those who are ready to lock themselves in their basements with canned goods and plenty of water. Aunt Meg tells Agnes that she's just trying to scare everyone. Shaggy says it's working, changing this now from Halloween scary to real life scary, so he's no longer on board with the festival. Naturally. Agnes tells them all to heed the warnings in the fields because the end is near and that tonight Hank Banning will rise from the dead to seek his revenge. Fred thinks someone's got to be behind all this, but he can't think of who. Daphne suspects that it's Marcy. Velma doesn't think she has a good reason. She's just kind of angry at her. Daphne says, just call it my intuition. So at least setting up that it's still petty Daphne, but okay. we'll have to see if anything becomes legit. Fred tells the gang that they should split up and look for clues, that he, Daphne, and Velma should go to the library to do research on the town's history while Shaggy and Scooby head to Agnes's home to see if they can learn anything about Hank Banning's backstory. Shaggy asks, why can't he and Scooby go to the library and Fred, Daphne, and Velma go to the scary old lady's house? And then Velma says, okay, yeah, sure. If you're going to the library, you got to pull every book magazine and almanac on the region. Then you got to cross-reference it with turn-of-the-century folklore. And then before she can go on about the microfiche archives, they notice that they're gone. And Fred goes, eh, I think you lost them. At book. 
<laughs> so we cut Never to Shag and Scooby at Agnes's home. They knock on the door, and of course, it opens because it's a creepy old mansion. Naturally. While they're looking for clues, Shaggy notices a cat bowl with Mr. Noodles written on it. And of course, Scooby eats it because it is food. They then find a full chest of gardening tools with all sorts of things that could hack up cornfields. And then Shaggy wonders, hmm, maybe Agnes is behind all of this. Maybe she's trying to ensure that the Hank Banning legend comes true. But then, of course, Agnes is right behind them. She's got a sickle in one hand and a basket of corn in the other. And she asks them, didn't your mamas teach you to knock before entering? Which they did do. They Uh-oh. knocked on the door, right. the asked audacity. if anyone was home, wow. and then it creepily opened. They've done nothing wrong, according to your metrics. <laughs> well, that would be like the injustice that would wreck me. Like, I did knock. Like, oh my gosh. It, re- <laughs> it reminds me in Beauty and the Beast when like there's like just a little kid at the castle, and the lady comes up and is like, can I come in? And he's like, uh, no. And he's like, 11. And... Like, closes the door, and she's like, uh, actually, I will be coming in, and I'll be cursing you for not letting me in. And it's like, you were a witch. Uh, like, <laughs> he, he should not have let you in. He read the situation correctly. Right, exactly. <laughs> so then the cat enters, the red-eye cat from before. It enters and gets really mad at Scooby when it notices that the cat food has been eaten from the bowl. So Shaggy and Scooby run away. And then we cut to the library where we see Velma, Fred, and Daphne. And they learn that apparently there was a processing plant just outside of town whose owners have been steadily buying up property in the area over the years. Daphne learns that the cornfields or the patterns appear were the last independently owned fields in the area. And Fred discovers that Eldon Reed, the guy in the bolo tie and everything, next to the mayor, he owns the processing plant. So they wonder if this is some sort of force the people out so I can buy the land situation. Marcy then appears, asking what they're doing here, and then she calls Daphne Debbie, which has become a bit. She keeps calling her incorrect D-letter names mm. as part of her way to Daphne. Yeah, naturally. Fred says that they're doing research, but he does say that they're doing research, which is the worst way to pronounce research. Yeah. <laughs> and then they ask Marcy why she's at the library. Marcy tells him that she's studying because they're making her take electrical engineering in school. Marcy also says that she was just on her way home for tonight's masquerade ball. And Fred says, oh, yeah, that's right. You're the corn princess. You must be excited. And Marcy says, "Eh, you know, I guess it's one way to spend my birthday. And Velma goes, oh, wow, I didn't realize it was your birthday. And then Marcy says, yeah, I'm turning 18, which now has me wonder what the age of the mystery gang is. Yeah, right. She says she's turning 18. And then she says, yeah, I'll be able to legally and then very pregnant pause vote and then kind of furrows her eyes a little bit at Fred. So I don't know what. She was implying there's a there's a couple things you can do when you legally turn 18. That sounds like Fred's at least older than 18. Right. Right. But like, are they making an age of consent joke in uh, I, children's That program? is exactly, that's exactly like, what it sounds like. Great use of pregnant pause, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'll give myself a bonus point. I'm in the mix now. There, there you go. go. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like uh, Darcy or Marcy's hoping to get pregnant here. You know, oh, <laughs> so Daphne asks Marcy where she was this morning, trying to see if she was behind the crop destruction. And Marcy says that she was at the mall because she works part-time at Khaki Corner, which I guess is the legally safe way to say the gap. Oh. Daphne asks <laughs> if anyone can confirm this. Marcy says the security guard, her assistant manager, and the guy who works at Pretzel Nation can. Oh. Plus, there's also an in-store camera that has her on tape. And Daphne goes, oh, yeah? Would you even have access to this alleged tape? And then we cut to them watching the tape, which is 
great. I don't care how they got this. But <laughs> then they are watching the tape and Daphne says, oh, come on. You can't even see your face. That could be anyone. You can 100% see Marcy's face. And then you see Marcy folding various clothes. There's hats and shirts and pants and gloves and scarves, like all sorts of stuff that you could get in the legally, we don't have to ask permission gap. And then you hear someone in the clothing thing off screen say, oh, ready for the big dance tonight, corn princess. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that is supposed to prove, yes, it is her on the video. Okay, okay. All right. We cut back to the cornfields and the gang finds a scarecrow in the cornfields who then comes alive and has fire shoot out of its eyes. Wow. And then there's four other scarecrows that follow suit. They all kind of hop off of their posts and then start chasing them. So we get a classic chase scene. All of the scarecrows have a different tool in hand. So like one has like a sickle, one has like a axe looking thing. So they all have different crop tools. And then Scooby finds a hose and hoses down two of the scarecrows. And we learn because they start to short circuit that these scarecrows are actually robots. Ah. So the other three leave and then Fred has a plan. Shaggy and Scooby will take all of the non-robot bits off of the scarecrows, dress up as the scarecrows, and then kind of replace the two short circuited robots and then follow wherever the other robots are going. And then the gang will use a shortwave radio in the mystery machine to try to find where the signal for these robots is coming from and then identify who's behind all of this. Oh, okay. smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then we get to the masquerade ball. Marcy is there and runs into Curtis, who is dressed up in a Halloween costume. He's dressed up as Hong Kong Fooey, which is an old Hanna-Barbera cartoon that <laughs> I did not recognize, but also, Marcy did not recognize. And then Curtis goes, oh, teenagers, they have no respect for history. And then <laughs> stomps off in a huff. We then see the gang. Velma tells Fred and Daphne that she has found the signal and it's coming from inside the town hall. So... Then at the party, Aunt Meg and Uncle Evan ask everyone, okay, give it up for the hottest band in the world, Kiss, yes. which is the way that the person who announces the show always says it. It's always give it up for the hottest band in the world, Kiss. And then Paul Stanley, actually voiced by Paul Stanley, says, happy Halloween, and then pauses because he doesn't know the name of the town. So then the person who's supposed to be Gene Simmons that I don't think was voiced by Gene Simmons goes, Banning Junction. And then Paul goes, Banning Junction! Make some noise! <laughs> and then they launch into, and for a bonus point, can anyone guess which Kiss song they play? It is an actual Kiss song. Oh, Rock geez. and roll all night. Okay, that's one guess. What about you, Ben? I don't know if I can name a Kiss song. All right, you both lose. It was Shout It Out Loud. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. <laughs> they do play a good portion of Shout It Out Loud. Like, there's nothing else happening. It's just what? like you're watching cartoon Kiss play, which I love. Shout Out Loud might be my favorite Kiss song. Uh, but they're playing, and then all of a sudden, the ghost of Hank Banning appears and it tells everyone to prepare for their doom because he has returned to seek revenge. So then the guitar player, Spaceman, who's now Tommy Thayer because this is current Kiss and not old Kiss, gotcha. asks Paul Stanley, what should we do? And Paul Stanley says, we should do what we always do. Keep playing until the cops come. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So then there's a classic chase scene. Fred tells the gang that the ghost of Hank Banning is just a projection. Daphne says that whoever's behind this must be inside the projector booth. So they go there, but no one's there. But then Velma says, ah, I know who's behind this. Follow me. And then we have the classic sort of unmasking, figure it out situation. So I turn it over to the two of you. Who do you think is behind <sighs> The oh Scarecrow gosh. Crop Destruction Mystery. Man, Man, okay, 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 okay. So we have, we have Mar. Who's the Who's the girl? Marcy. Marcy. Yeah, we've Marcy. got Marcy, the cousin. 
the corn princess. We've got the mayor, who clearly was hyping up the legend to sell tickets. We have Edmund, the bolo tie guy, who we learned owns the warehouse and was buying a property, and this farm was the final independently owned farm. And then we've got Curtis, the grumpy person who's just mad at teenagers who have no respect for history. Right. Okay, okay. And then we have Aunt Meg and Uncle Evan, if you think they're suspicious and flying under the radar, and Velma is actually related to criminals. Okay. Right, right. You know, I was I was thinking about Uncle Evan here for a good portion of it, I'm not going to lie. What What yeah. made you think Uncle Evan? Well, because like, it sounds like he owns the cornfields, right? So maybe he's in cahoots with, like, wanting to sell them or something and is, like, responsible for the scarecrows out there. I believe they never clarify who owns the cornfield that okay. is attacked. Okay. All we know is that it is independently owned. Okay. And it's right across from the warehouse, and it's the final independently owned field in town. Okay, okay. but so then also there was the pumpkin thing in the mirror from earlier? Yeah, basically there was just a flash of lightning. I don't know that that's any sort of clue other than just a preview of what the monster is because we keep seeing things from a first-person perspective of who's destroying the crops. Okay. And you can kind of see, like, a plaid shirt, so... Okay. I think that that is just showing us like, oh, there's someone creepy and then it ends up being the robot scarecrows. So I don't know that that's a clue. I think it's just vibes. Okay. 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 All right. I was going to say, because like the the reflection in the house is like only three other people there. So it's just like, let's narrow in. Right. I mainly just kept that in the notes just so we had receipts of Marcy's, what I thought at the time was just completely out of left field, insulting of Daphne before we learn that okay. it was an intentional insulting. <laughs> well, okay. so the, right. the Marcy thing I think is interesting is that like she was at the library because she was taking a reading books for electrical engineering. And if the scarecrows themselves are robots. I know, I know. That's then, like, sort of, it feels like, like there's like an obvious little like, like okay, I, yeah. can, I can see the tie. It feels like that's so obvious as to be like a bit of a red herring. It, it does feel you know? that way, especially because it seems like she's been the one who gets like a lot of FaceTime and like who is directly having conflict with one of the gang members the whole time. It feels like a prime situation to, right. to sort of be like, she's been one of the more prominent characters versus the other three who I feel like are a little bit more They threw them in there. But they all yeah. have motives because, you know, the mayor on the one hand, you know, if he's been like kind of drumming up the excitement in a way to like get as much turnout as possible to the town, then like you could say like, okay, like, you know, there's something to be said for that. But like, if people are all coming to the town because of the myth, because of the excitement, like they're already there. They're already there. So the destruction of the fields at that point in time doesn't necessarily like to me read as like, right. it doesn't produce more business because something bad actually happened. It was more trying to prey on the on the legend as a means mm-hmm. to get people there in the first place. Because otherwise, I think as Shaggy pointed out, Kiss is also just playing. <laughs> right. You know, so there's there's like another really just like great really reason, good to, like, reason for them to be there. Yeah. So then we've got uh Bolo tie wearing gentleman who Edmund. Edmund, who would stand to benefit like if he could lower the value of the property by having it appear as though it's haunted then it could be a great way to get a hesitant buyer to sort of, like, let go of the land. Right. I think the implication is that he's trying to spook the independent farmers away from holding onto the land so that he can buy it off of them. It seems like this is the only farmers that haven't sold their land to him. Okay. So it would be like, I got to run him out of town because they're refusing to sell to me kind of thing. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. And then lastly, we have Curtis who has sort of got the history angle going on and maybe could just feel like 
nobody's taking it seriously enough and wants to like scare people into appreciating the town's history more. Right. Like, oh yeah, you weren't appreciating history. Now here, 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 history is going to come get you. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. I see. So. Yeah. You've laid them all out. It's just a matter of who you think it is. (laughs) I know. I think. Okay. So you said something about like people needing to like stay underground with water at one point. That was Agnes. I guess we haven't discussed her as a suspect. Agnes says that everyone should be hiding in their basements and they should have food and water and wait it out because Hank Banning will come for you all. Oh. Mm. Okay, okay, okay. I think I'm still leaning more towards Marcy as the culprit because of the cat. Because... Agnes had the woodshed full of all of the different scarecrow handles and like things that they might be holding. And the cat noticed Marcy stealing those things for that. And that is why the cat has followed her to the house. And then the cat is also there following her when they get the candy apples. And uh, it looks like maybe it's stealing from Shaggy and Scooby, but she's really there following Marcy. Marcy also has the electrical engineering. It seems like they went absolutely out of their way to prove that she was at the mall, but that just makes me feel like there's no reason to go into such detail to prove that she was at the mall unless she wasn't at the mall. So there you go. I'm going with Marcy. Okay. Alrighty. Okay. I will just try to take, you know, in the, in the spirit of, of healthy competition, I think, is it Edmund? Is Edmund our, our... He's the landowner who is potentially trying to force people out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go with Edmund. Okay. All righty. Well, I'm happy to say that Jay is correct. Yes! It was Marcy. Oh, man. It was Marcy. The key giveaways was first the electrical engineering that could help with controlling robots. Yeah. But then the actual motive is that her birthday is on Halloween. And every single year, her birthday is always second place to Halloween and the Halloween Ah. festival. No one ever pays attention to it being her birthday. This is her 18th birthday and still nobody cares. Like it's a special occasion. And still everyone just wants to talk about Halloween and the ball and her being the corn princess and not her being the birthday girl. So she wanted to try and make people scared of the event so that it would either get canceled or people wouldn't care as much and people would care more about her birthday than the whole thing. I love the cat angle. I don't think that that was one of the things that they had put in. We oh. do have some creepy like afterwards stuff where the cat just like shows up again and then it has its glowing red eyes and then the cat disappears but the eyes remain. Oh, okay. I don't know if that was anything. I don't know if there's a sequel episode or something but Ooh. it's just at least for the Halloween episode they're like we have to put something scary in there. So I really enjoyed that. Was there any point behind the glove? Yeah, what was the glove? The glove was that Marcy went on top of the water tower so that she could get a view of what the shapes would all look like while she was remote controlling the robot scarecrows when they were, you know, hacking and burning stuff up so she could make sure they're making the proper shapes. And then the glove, this is more of a visual thing, but the glove is the same type of glove we see on the security footage in the mall video so i did say like there's clothes there there's a so how did she fake herself at the mall she really was or she was there okay she was there yeah so she wasn't there 
during the attack because they are remote-controlled robots. Uh, So she was able to do that remote, but she had, I guess, before they knew the attack was happening, you know, gotten up there, done it, and then went and then had the same type of glove that they sell at Khaki Corner. Gotcha. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Okay, okay, okay. Man. Well, so I I feel like you laid out such a great argument, and I was like, I really can't. I, I feel like I can't necessarily just like 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 yeah that yeah that but uh, like, as, like especially i think as like there was like the whole aside where they like go into the house and like you didn't they teach you to knock and all that and it's like the the misty equipment the way you tied that back to the house and everything i was like yeah that's i didn't think any of that that is really that's pretty good mm-hmm, so all i yeah. could really do and i and obviously i was like i feel like i don't even have a good argument here so I'm just like <laughs> i'll just pick someone else in case well i will chance. say that jay's gonna get the full three points for getting it right ben i am gonna give you a bonus point just because you did lay out the potential theories for everyone else perfectly okay uh, so at the very least i think that's worthy of a point yeah and now you. we can get into our final case now this one is called wrestlemaniacs which i don't think is any sort of pun. I think we've just gone into cool title territory here, but we're getting into that. Are either of you guys big uh, wrestling folks? I mean, rest, like WrestleMania Twitter? is like the biggest wrestling event of the year, right? So, so re- WrestleManiacs, yeah. And uh, okay, like there you go. We've done, okay, yeah. cool. Boom. All right. Uh, Jay's getting another point for identifying what the joke was since I missed it. That's amazing. Uh, six to three now. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, boom. Jay used to work oh. at, a, at, a, uh, at a concert venue doing promotion for. Yeah, WWE would come like uh, twice a year. So yeah. Yeah, oh, we cool. did a lot of SmackDown. Yeah. We yeah, were, uh, we I had to, uh, my job was to arrange the seat fillers for Ooh. the show. Yeah. So that like if, if it was ever on camera, they like if people mm-hmm. get up to go get popcorn, they will have people like go sit in those seats. So it never they looks like the crowd WrestleMania. is empty. I thought that was just like award shows. Not even WrestleMania, man. This is just regular like, you know, Monday Night Raw, like on the weekly at the venue wow. they're at. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, that would be a cool, cool job to have. I wish sports would do that. I would gladly watch basketball from like a tunnel and then every now and then go and do a yeah, good season so look more full. Yeah, yeah yes, that'd be fun. Absolutely. You get like all the different perspectives. Exactly. Yeah, super fun. Okay, so WrestleManiacs opens with Broderick Bocephus, who is voiced by Jim Cummings. For a bonus point, does anyone know who Jim Cummings does the voice of? Winnie the Pooh. That is correct. Dang it. <laughs> Seven to three I now. Think amongst like probably like a hundred other things. <laughs> oh, so many. Yeah. But yeah. Winnie the Pooh, definitely the most famous one. I think he is also Ed in Lion King. Oh, okay. Like oh, the, nice. the bleh, tongue yeah. out hyena. Yeah, yeah. Love it. Love it. And I'm also pretty sure that he did a little bit of the singing part for Be Prepared because Who's the Jeremy Irons? Jeremy, Jeremy Irons. Irons. Yeah. I always have to go back and forth, and this is a long-running Potterist thing where I get Jeremy Irons and Jason Isaacs confused because they're British actors with J.I. Okay, uh, he like lost his voice from vocal cord strain for singing like too intensely on Be Prepared. <laughs> so I think Jim Cummings did like part of it. I think like, I have to, heard that just yeah. to fill it in. Oh yeah, my yeah. gosh! Yeah. That's, that, so yeah, that's he's a cool credited as Ed, and then. Scar, Scar singing voice. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. One of the most iconic Disney songs of all time. No big deal. Just so, oh, the best. The yeah. best song. Top notch. It's the my personal favorite. And it's also terrifying. Anyway, <laughs> yes. so Broderick Bocephus, who is voiced by Jim Cummings, introduces the Bocephus Wrestling Federation Jumbo Bowl, which is this giant arena. And he is showing off the insides of it to all these reporters, all these cool features for their next big event. It's got an underwater cage. It's got hydraulic platforms. There's zip lines. There's all sorts of cool stuff. That's awesome. 
and he has a demonstration prepared for the reporters. There are two wrestlers hooked up to zip lines, and then all of a sudden, a two arms on one side blob looking monster attacks. And then we cut to the intro of What's New Scooby Doo, which is perfect. And I always laugh when the streaming service has the skip intro button in the bottom right, because why would you ever skip the intro? The intro of What's New Scooby Doo, performed by Simple Plan, is the greatest song of our generation. What are you doing? It's like, what you, are you doing? Like, don't, don't miss out on this quality experience. Right? Yeah. yeah. I wish there was like a button underneath skip intro that was like, how dare you? (laughs) Why would I ever? So the next night, the gang shows up to watch the wrestling event because Fred is a major fan. And he sees Sparrow Man. He can bench 220, so. I'd be lucky. He's he's pretty strong. He sees Sparrow Man, who is one of the two people from that presentation they were doing for the reporters, we see him in an arm sling arguing with Bocephus that they are all going to refuse to perform until the monster has been taken care of. Bocephus says that they work for him, so they have to do what he says. And initially, I am really hoping that it's Bocephus because power to the people, power to the workers. I don't like this guy at all. I'm really hoping it's him right off the bat. Right. Yeah. He's got to get like a Vince McMahon energy going here. Oh, yep. I'm sure that was the comparison. The gang asks about the monster. Sparrow Man explains that it is the Titanic twist. Shaggy hopes that's just the name of a cool smoothie. But Sparrow Man says, hardly, and then explains that the twist itself, the Titanic twist was a move so dangerous that it was outlawed after its only use. And the recipient of the first and only ever Titanic twist, he now has a ghost that is returning as an evil, contorted beast seeking revenge on the wrestling world for turning their backs on him. Daphne says, why don't you guys just postpone the event until you figure things out? Bocephus says that he has too much writing on this to cancel. The wrestlers then all leave, led by Sparrowman, but then two of the wrestlers, Sugar and Spice, comment that this wouldn't have happened if they were the main attraction, but they still leave anyway? So maybe they're protesting because they're angry that they're not the headliners, not because of the safety concerns? (laughs) We'll see more of them later, but they just seem angry at Bocephus. Got it. Bocephus wonders who can fill in on such short notice, and then Fred reveals that underneath his normal outfit, he was wearing a full wrestling getup. And I don't like this. Don't scab, Fred. Come on, man. Dude, like This isn't an official on. strike, but clearly <laughs> this is in the spirit of a strike. Don't do this. Don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. We cut to Fred then practicing with other wrestlers inside the ring, such as The Scientist and Malachi Crunch. So Malachi Crunch is practicing with the scientist and Fred, and then his kids run up saying that they thought that he was going to sit out this fight because he already won the championship belt. So why risk getting hurt? And he says, no, no, no. I love this. This is my life. Blah, 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 blah. The Titanic twist then interrupts practice, grabs the scientist and leaves. Fred decides that they should split up and look for clues. Shaggy and Scooby go to the wrestlers trailers, which are kind of behind the arena. And they see the Titanic twist get out of a trailer, so they enter. Then we cut back to Fred, Daphne, and Velma at the concessions booth, where they are approached by a salesman, the humongous Hammer. He's a former wrestler, now turned candy salesman. He was the BWF champion years ago. The humongous Hammer says that an injury derailed his career. He says, I put on a good show every night. And how does Pacifus reward me? By making me sell candy. So after he leaves, Velma goes, "Eh, okay, his motive could be there. And Daphne says he's also the size of the titanic twist so Mm -hmm. that could work too okay 
We cut back to Shaggy and Scooby in the trailer. They find milkshakes in the fridge and they chug them, but they're actually protein shakes, so they think they're gross. They try to overcome the gross taste because they find a can that looks like whipped cream, but when they spray it, they realize it's actually sleeping powder and Shaggy falls asleep. The Titanic twist then notices them inside the trailer and kind of unlatches it and pushes it down a cliff. Oh! Scooby is able to bring Shaggy to safety from this runaway trailer and then surfs down and then uses the momentum to go back up the cliff on a two by four and then rejoins the gang at the parking lot with all the other trailers. Because regular, that's physics. Regular shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, you just you just always throw it to the side. Anytime Scooby does something, yes. Show as a talking dog. Of course, he can surf up a mountain. Why not? On we, a two we by are, four. We, none of us are fussed. No. <laughs> this all tracks. <laughs> it's, it's all perfect. So Fred, Daphne, and Velma check to make sure that they're okay. They said they heard a large crash, so they came to see what was going on. Scooby uses charades to explain everything that's going on. Velma perfectly understands and notes that that particular trailer belonged to Malachi Crunch. So this is the person who had the kids. It was his trailer. So then they go into the Wrestling Hall of Fame inside the arena to learn more about Malachi Crunch and the other wrestlers. The Titanic twist shows up again and intentionally wrecks the Crunch's exhibit, but no other exhibit, before starting the classic Scooby-Doo chasing. The humongous hammer then shows up in the aftermath, followed by Malachi Crunch, and then followed by his kids who are worried for him. The gang has a new plan. And then we cut to Daphne and Velma suiting up in the women's wrestler's dressing room. And then Sugar and Spice, those grumpy people from before, they show up and they're angry that these two people are back in the dressing room thinking that they are not really wrestlers. Velma lies that she's bookworm and Daphne lies that she is fashion sense and they're in full costume. They look great. They have like really cool like matching but of course Velma's is orange and Daphne's is purple. Right, yeah. And Sugar and Spice are then upset saying, oh, well if you're real wrestlers we don't want more competition but are you real wrestlers? There's one way to find out. So then they bring them to the ring and they start wrestling and Daphne and Velma actually hold their own. Daphne just, I guess, has enough athletic prowess and Velma kind of destroys Tracks her away from some of the body slams by being like, oh, a sail. And then like, she runs away and, and doesn't get smashed. And then Velma is just like a textbook of knowledge. So she knows all the like particular points and stuff. So they hold their own. Amazing. We cut to Shaggy, Scooby, and Fred, who are all dressed up as janitors so that they can snoop around. They're in the security room when they run into the Titanic twist and then get chased. Fred actually gets captured by the Titanic twist. Shaggy and Scooby then meet up with Daphne and Velma back at the ring after their whole test session with the other two. But it's just Daphne and Velma now. They are alone at the ring. And when they're talking, saying, oh, no, Fred got captured, Bocephus then enters. And he's furious when he sees the gang at the ring because he has a sellout crowd because of all the news reporting about the twist. And he doesn't want these kids ruining it and postponing or shutting down the event. Velma suggests that they split up before Shaggy can protest, saying, hey, Fred isn't here. We don't need to split up. But then Daphne and Velma are gone. So then Shaggy and Scooby find the salted pretzel room and decide, well, this is the perfect place to look for Fred. Of course. Obviously, he's got to be in here. And the only way to find him is to eat all of the pretzels. So they start eating all of the pretzels. And then Fred is there. He is actually being held captive in the salted pretzel room. Amazing. Good instincts. Indeed, right? It's incredible. It's so good. But then, of course, the Titanic twist is also in there. So (gasps) this is a big room. Yeah, big room. It's like a huge storage facility with lots of salted pretzels. Gotcha. (laughs) 
<laughs> so the twist is there too. Shaggy and Scooby go very heroic and they goad the twist into chasing after them so that Fred can be safe. We get a classic chase scene, which of course ends with Shaggy and Scooby entering a cage used for a cage match against a farmer-themed wrestler during the actual event. Like, sellout crowd is here. Shaggy and Scooby have stumbled into the ring against a farmer-themed wrestler. The Titanic twist enters this ring like through a trapdoor thing in the floor and pushes the farmer back through it. So now it is the twist versus Shaggy and Scooby. Daphne and Velma then see what's going on. They find the controls for the big cage that's on like a hydraulic lift. No one is manning the controls. So Daphne and Velma just start pushing the buttons and stuff. Yeah, why would they ever man that? Why would they do that? Daphne and Velma then maneuver the cage so that the three of them are sent out of it. And then Shaggy and Scooby zipline to safety into a mud pit. The twist follows. Shaggy and Scooby then hide in a water cage. Then the twist tries to punch them free to get to them. But the water pushes the twist away from them. So then Daphne and Velma then move the cage and position the hole to go over the Titanic twist. And then they can do the classic unmasking. And now I turn it over to the two of you. Who is behind the Titanic twist? Oh, oh man. man. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So be... the, the thing that stands out to me is the whipped cream sleeping powder. Yeah. Like who's, who's. That was Malachi. That is Malachi Crunch. It is in his trailer. Okay. And the only thing that the gang talks about the sleeping powder is Daphne suggests maybe he uses this to fall asleep because the trailer situation is loud with all the like, you know, generators and wrestlers making noise and practicing. It's like whipped cream shaped. It looks like a whipped cream can, but when they show the logo, it's not like it's intentionally disguised as it. Okay. It was okay. just a situation where Shaggy and Scooby thought they found milkshakes and whipped cream, but they actually found protein shakes and sleeping powder. Okay. The way Velma describes the sleeping powder, it just seems like a normal thing in the Scooby-Doo universe. It just happens to come in a can that looks like, you know, the red and white spirally classic look. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. But like Barbasol shaving cream comes in that can too. So I guess it's just a thing where like sometimes things are in red and white spiral cans. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and Malachi Crunch has two kids. He's got two kids, yes. And they had showed up because they were concerned that he was getting back in the ring. They thought, oh, you're the champion. You don't have to do this anymore. Okay. I guess he could have the protein shakes for the kids or something. I don't know if that, like, matches up at all. No, why would have the sleeping powder? It seems like such a, like, it must be relevant. But who would want to get rid of someone? Because he look, the Titanic Twist looks in the trailer, sees that it's Shaggy and Scooby, and then pushes that down. Right. So he's not like he's trying to get rid of Malachi Crunch then. Because he knows... He knows that Malachi Crunch is not in there. Right. The twist sees that Shaggy and Scooby are in there and then decides to push it down. So that's okay. what caused okay. it. If it's Malachi Crunch himself, he could see that Shaggy and Scooby have discovered something in his dressing room and then get rid of it. And he could destroy his own display to throw suspicion off of himself... I suppose, but then I guess it could also just be like Bocephus, and he's like pulling all these stunts to get the sellout crowd. Right, like, I mean, there's there's always sort of like the uh, very like capitalistic character, I feel like, or, or suspect, mm-hmm. who sort of like stands to like like make a buck 
off of like yep. the happening. So it was like our it was like the mayor of the town, right? Yeah, in the, in the last one. So that's that's the what show's incredibly ahead of its time for 2003, and that there's a lot of like anti-capitalist messaging in yeah, what's right. in Scooby Doo. It's <laughs> right, great. Right. Like Thanks. there's a couple huh. times where like the solution is like someone's doing like insurance fraud. Like it's fantastic. It's like, like okay, what? Like, okay. Oh, is this a kids <laughs> yeah. show? Yeah, 2003, and they've got like Daphne being you know a very competent, strong, powerful woman to flip the damsel in distress thing on its head, just like quality program. Man. Yeah, no, it's like, it's like uh, it, it does seem like it's like way ahead of its time there. Just crushing it back then in 2003. Mm-hmm. But so I feel like there was a couple of characters that like we met early on and then so there was something the Sparrow yeah, Sparrow Man is someone that shows up a lot early on, and then honestly, we don't see him. But he was in the beginning thing where he was on the zip line. He was in a sling, so we assume that he got hurt when the twist kind of ruined the demonstration for the reporters. And then he leads the charge of the wrestler, saying, We refuse to perform for these unsafe conditions. Okay, okay. So that's the thing, though. So whoever's running it made the original attack, and the attack led to the strike right. of the wrestlers, right? Right. I guess not an official strike, though. Just some people yeah. saying they're not going to perform. But some people clearly still are. Yeah. Sparrowman, who leads this charge, basically says, we are not going to perform until the monster situation has been resolved. So that could be a thing of like, yeah, it was intentionally because that was their grounds for saying we're not doing this. But but then did it, is it not also the case that like the show sort of still does go on with participants being involved, even though we still haven't unmasked? Yeah, they just are having other wrestlers. These particular five people that we see, they have all protested against it. Sparrowman leading the charge and then Sugar and Spice also being there. But their motive seeing more of like, we're mad that we weren't the headliners. So we're going to use this as an excuse not to perform. They see more about getting slighted than they do the safety conditions. Okay, Okay. gotcha. So then we had the Candyman, the, the Hammer. Yes, the humongous hammer. The humongous and hammer. The gang pointed out, okay, you know, he seems like he might be mad at Bocephus because, you know, he performed all the time, then he had this career ending injury. And the only thing Bocephus did to quote unquote help him was turn him into a candy salesman, you know, didn't give him a high profile job or anything like that. He just made him work retail in the arena. A significant axe to grind. Right. Or yes. in this case, hammer. Right. And then Daphne points out that he's the right size of the twist. Right. Because the twist is pretty big. I'm still leaning towards Bocephus here, largely because the attack happens while there's a TV report happening. And he says that because of the attacks, there's a sold out crowd. And the only reason people know there's an attack is because it happens on camera. And he could have been in control of that. Plus, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think in addition to the fact that like he's not necessarily known for treating his people very well, case in point, the humongous hammer. Right. Like, I think that that would kind of go hand in hand. And it's like, he's sort of okay with whatever is going to bring people in. And so, like, including, because I feel like the, the strike element feels like there, but soft, because like it would be so reactionary to the original problem, like in order for it to be integral to the motive. Right. Does yeah. That, like, does that make the, sense? yeah, the blob's already in motion. It right. doesn't really have anything to do with the strike. <laughs> And the then blob is in the motion. Blob I'm glad we found the episode man. title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he could, I mean, I don't know how much he knows about the mystery crew, 
But if he sees like an opportunity to just get rid of like Shaggy and Scooby, like, no, don't salt, you know, don't find me out. I'm not sure what the sleeping powder would play in. Like, did anyone else go to sleep at any given point? Oh, the only thing that we did have is when Fred was tied up, he was asleep. Uh So they had Fred tied up. And then the scientist, the guy who got taken away during practice, they also found him tied up. And both he and Fred were asleep. Okay. Let's see. Okay. okay. All right. So who are, then, yeah, then I'm start. I'm really still leaning towards Bo Sipas here, especially just because it's like, I haven't seen the episode, but in the real world, Vince McMahon is like the eternal villain of the WWE, like show. Sure. And yeah. that, that's like the bad guy of wrestling, even though he's, I guess also owns it. But if this show is that far ahead of its time, which I think it is like, I think there's been like an entire John Oliver about like <laughs> Vince McMahon, like not being a good guy. So mm-hmm. it would not surprise me if the show was like, Hey, that dude, <laughs> <laughs> that guy, well, the thinly veiled WrestleManiax here. Yeah. We're, so I'm I'm sticking with Bo Cephas based okay. on the show is ahead of its time and trying to call him and throw shade at him. Okay. But also everything else. Okay. I am going to go because I do I do think again that there's a lot of strong arguments for it. I feel like the early press, the trying to get people there. I've got everything inside of it. Like I feel like in the spirit of of competition, I agree with all of the points, and I feel like they're very mm-hmm. well laid out for uh, Bocephus. Who who is the gentle lad who has the two boys? It is Malachi. They say Malachi Crunch, but it's spelled like Malachi Crunch. So I don't know if it was just like everyone pronouncing the name wrong, uh, no. but it was Malachi Crunch. They didn't Crunch, do their research. The two kids who were like, Dad, I thought you were going to stop because you already won the bell. And then he came again after the situation in the Hall of Fame was like, oh, Dad, come on, it's dangerous. But but again, it is his trailer that the twist finds Shaggy and Scoob's in. Yeah. They just call it the Malachi trailer. So I'm not sure if like he and the kids live there or if it's just his, but they identify it when Scooby comes back and charades everything. Velma goes, the Malachi trailer, when she identifies which trailer got pushed down the cliff. Well, again, yeah, so I'm going to go with Malachi. And I think that my basis for it is going to be the discovery of... Shaggy and Scooby inside of it, the sleeping powder being in there feels at least somewhat suspect. Maybe it was being like injected into the protein shakes or something. And like that was like the setup for a conversation of some kind. And it was going to like put somebody to sleep so they couldn't, I don't know, but that's what I'm going with. And then I feel like basically when discovered, the belief was that he had been found out by these two people. And the only thing to do was to then destroy the evidence and the people who had found him. Sure. So I'm going with, I'm going with Malachi Crunch. Okay, well, I'm happy to say that neither of you are correct. Oh, man. It was, you were close, Ben. It was Malachi's kids. What? The kids did the two kids in a trench coat thing. Oh, my uh, gosh. It was the two of them in the costume, and their whole thing was that they wanted to get the event shut down because they were worried for their dad's health and safety because of what happened to people like the humongous hammer who had career-ending injuries. They were afraid that would happen to their dad. So when they learned that he was still going to perform, even though he won the championship belt, they decided, okay, now we've got to make it to scary maybe we'll make it like a a scary thing but malachi was still like no i'm gonna perform i'm gonna perform i'm gonna do it so then that's why they kept doing stuff and that is how we have it so we have like a really like noble reason for the kids but they are still so were they trying to drug him with the sleeping powder so that he just couldn't go on i think what it is is it's just like they have the sleeping powder in 
the fridge and then I guess they just like hope their dad doesn't notice or maybe their dad also will think it's whipped cream. But I think the implication there might have been that like whether the kids live in the trailer or they just like kept it in the trailer. Okay. It was that the twist would have access to it to then use whenever it would whatever tie it needed. people up and stuff. Yeah. Okay. okay, but okay. so like they're they're so concerned about their dad not getting hurt, but not concerned about pushing Shaggy and Scooby down a hill in a trailer. Look, they're not their dad. You know, they're just, <laughs> yeah. I just met them. You're not related to me. Yeah. <laughs> and then that was the what? other thing of when they go into the museum when they break the stuff just of the crunches and no one else's. The kids were like, "Well, clearly he's after you." You know, uh, like, oh, there was more. Like they were trying to create someone that looked like it was specifically trying to target the crunch so that the crunch would go, maybe I should retire. I okay. see. Okay. Mm. I, I appreciate the noble reasoning, you know, the, like, you know, yeah. they, they I just, don't feel like they're that noble. Well, I mean, they're just looking out for their pops. <laughs> they're yes. still attempting murder. <laughs> <laughs> details details but speaking of details details we do have the final score jay you actually do get a misery loves company bonus point because i guess bocephus because i always just guess the first person you meet oh, right that's <laughs> yeah. just that tried and true and i also wanted him to be guilty because of his bad workplace practices but what that means is you have won this episode of meddling adults with a score of eight to three so oh, you get the victory. bragging rights of earning the money for feeding southwest virginia it is fun though your trivia stuff did help your little uh uh, Jim Cummings bonus point did uh, play away. So oh, yeah. your, your encyclopedic boom. trivia knowledge did come through. But Ben, you still fall violently. This was still a very fun episode. That's all that truly matters, especially because it was going to be the same organization anyway. But now, you know, when I submit the charity thing, I will say courtesy of John that's, Merlin. That's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> From meddling adults, specifically John, don't give Ben any don't credit give ben for this any one. credit. <laughs> Please write all, all of that, that on yeah. the form. Yes. <laughs> I'll see what the character count is, but I'll try yeah, to make that happen. That's amazing. But this was so fun. I'm so glad you two could finally be on the show. I know people were very hyped when they learned about that. So thank you so much. If people want to find you doing stuff, where can they find you doing stuff? Oh, man, you can always check us out on uh, YouTube. Just search for Super Carlin Brothers, where we do uh, fan theories about Harry Potter, um, Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, Avatar, Hunger Games, all that stuff. A little bit a little bit of everything over there. We got a good medley going on. We did dive deep into the Hunger Games stuff recently, which was fun. We also have a podcast of our own called Popcorn Culture. I feel like in a lot of ways, it's like the people who found Super Carlin Brothers early kind of grew up with us. And maybe like not to say that they've like out grown like some of the fandom related stuff but like if they wanted to like follow into like you know like the rest of our lives as we you know kind of like raise our families and and speak on like a more personal level about what we've been up to and everything uh yeah you can find that wherever pods are cast uh it's popcorn culture popcorn culture and then i'm not sure when this episode is going to come out mike but we are also in the process of launching a brand new podcast which i'm cool. very excited about i know it is it is called through the gryffindor yes and it is the exact Exact opposite of Potterless, wherein <laughs> Mike Mike read through the story, um, having never experienced Harry Potter before. This is us going chapter by chapter through Harry Potter, having read it about a hundred times before. And mm-hmm. uh, I've been marking up my little pages. I've got notes on every single page so far. I'm yep. so excited about it. Yeah. So the 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 rough premise there is that basically we are we are like literally. So you know you you not having the experience, we have way too much uh, at this point, and so. It's it's just like it's attempting to sort of like dissect each chapter by chapter to 
really get like a, a good hard look at like what's going on, what's introduced, what's being set up when, and kind of looking for those glorious, glorious plot holes that, you know, we've we worked so hard to fill throughout mm-hmm. the years, so... Amazing. Cool. Well, yeah. If you've ever listened to Potteros and going, oh, I hate this. I want the exact opposite. <laughs> well, there you go. I don't know why you like me on meddling adults, but here you are. Well, that's super cool. Yeah. And of course, there will be links to relevant stuff in the notes portion of this episode. But Ben and Jay, thank you so much for joining. This was a delight. And I am just so happy that we finally got to have this brother battle between two lovely meddling adults. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Meddling Adults. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by me, Mike Schubert. It is produced and edited by Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Kumbamanis and Brandon Grugel. The art is by Ma'ayanatius and Kelly Schubert. And the web design is by me and Kelly Schubert. If you want to get more involved in the show, you can follow us on social media. We're at Meddling Adults on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You also can join the Patreon community at patreon.com slash Adults. That's also how we support the charities in addition to direct donations and the ad money. And if you want to help out the show in a different way, you can talk about it on social media. You can tell a friend about it directly. Tell your parents, tell your children, tell the teachers at the parent-teacher conferences that you're going to. Just tell everybody about it. But I hope you subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts because our next episode, which is the season four finale, is a fantastic one. And it is between Felix Trench and Megan Fitzmartin covering some American Girl mini-mysteries. But make sure you are subscribed wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss the season four finale next Wednesday of Meddling Adults.